trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stop that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger, so we chat to people who have found them before. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things, but just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. In today's episode, we're joined by Mark Tobin. Mark's an investor passionate about finding undiscovered microcap stocks. He was previously an equity analyst working at Woolsted Asset Management. He currently runs Coffee Microcaps, which is an event connecting emerging companies with investors. In this conversation, Mark shares his views on stock selection, things to look for in small cap companies and their management, as well as his own investment approach. But without further ado, let's just get straight into the show. Thank you very much for joining us on the show. For anybody that's coming across Mark Tobin for the first time, uh, Mark actually did a really terrific interview on Planet Microcaps in 2017. It was episode 53, uh, where if you do want to find more about Mark's background with uh, Jeff Wilson and explaining the overview of the ASX, it's very good. But Mark, um, we're really interested in understanding, I guess, your role now and what you're doing and, and why you're interested in small cap. Yeah, I mean, I guess I got bitten by the, the bug when I was working at um, Wilson Asset Management, particularly kind of my focus is in the in the microcap space now. And when I was working at Wilson Asset Management, um, one of the portfolios there, um, they were, I guess, a, a bit smaller than they are now, um, but they were a specialist, let's say a small cap uh, boutique manager at the time, you know, that early stage growth and you know it can be pretty big uh, price rises that little subset of the portfolio i guess was the bit that i kind of fell in love with you know i loved like looking at companies that you know nobody else on the street was kind of talking to you about or trying to reverse broke to you and yeah that's probably going back 2014 now sorry even earlier maybe 2012 so yeah for the last eight years i've been kind of following uh, Australian microcaps, um, a, b- a bit from afar since I don't uh, live in Australia anymore. But you know, I'm very focused on it. And what um, position did you have there at Wilson Asset Management, Mark? Maybe if you want to give a bit of an overview of what the role entailed. Yeah, so I was a equity analyst. So we were part of um, an investment team. There was um, five of us there at the time. So there was myself, Martin Hickson, and Mahout. We were the three analysts, I guess, and then. There was Chris Stott, Matthew Kidman was there for, uh, who people might know, and he was there for the early part of when I was at Wilson's. I mean, our job as equity analyst was to, you know, find new ideas and, and, and dig up as much information as we could on companies in the portfolio and companies we were looking at. And, you know, Jeff used to always say, and it's, uh, it's definitely, I think, uh, true, you know, the person with the, the best information and the most information generally wins, i.e. your probability of um, getting onto a, a good stock is, is heightened if you have a lot of information about it. And that's not to say, you know, it's like inside information. 
it's like truly understanding like how does this business make money you know uh, you know what macro trends might be affecting it either positively or negatively so that when you see announcements coming out on the ASX you have sufficient context uh, to frame that announcement in so that you can oh should I be selling here should I be buying here um, and it helps you I guess hold if you're holding through the noise and the volatility or like the stocks down 8% on no news okay fine or it's you know down on one bad uh, appendix 4c a quarterly or a half year but actually the, the long-term story is um, still intact it's just some people might be getting impatient but you only know the long-term story is intact if you've done the due diligence and the research and stuff beforehand so i think that was one of the biggest learnings i had was like you know learn as much as you can um, we were all generalists none of us really had sector specialisms as you would kind of find in the research departments of stockbroking firms you know they'll have a financials person they'll have a resources materials person whereas at wilson's you know we gravitated across all sectors everybody could pull something from anywhere that thing about having the information i think that is really key if you understand your positions then you know um when to get in when to get out and uh, crucially maybe when to hold when the rest of the market is maybe um taking a, a dim view of uh, a, a more recent result. Mark, I can't help but thinking when I listen to what you're suggesting or saying is that information advantages is huge. So, for example, if you're looking at the daily ASX announcements for the first time and you see something interesting, you've got to realise that you might be in an information disadvantage to someone else who's across the story and knows what they're looking for. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that is definitely true. I'll never forget the first analyst briefing that I went to when I started working at Wilson's and it was at um, well they were called CIMB at the time um, but I went to that meeting and the analyst from CIMB Julian Guido he's actually a portfolio manager now at um, Perennial he was like kind of hosting the thing or whatever and they were like running through this I can't even remember the name of the, the company but he was running through the results and this that and the other and you know I've got the results uh, announcement there the presentation everything you know I'd, I'd read it before I went there but I like quickly realized I had no clue um, compared to the other 90% of the people sitting in the room um, you know who've probably been across the story for a while so, you know I quickly realized you know there is a lot to learn um, and I think that's what retail investors um, need to be cognizant of um, you know, it, it, you, you're not going to like jump in day one and, you know, be the next like Warren Buffett. Um, you know, it, take, it takes time to build up that kind of market knowledge, feel, experience, you know, whatever whatever it might be. It's the same with any, any new thing you're picking up. Um, but the, the, the other thing, I, I, as you kind of hang around the market uh, longer, you also realize um, that new people come to stories all the time and as i as i always say you know you can probably fool the market about once every five years uh and then just to give you an example i, I won't mention the company but wilson's took a stake in a, in the ipo i think we did okay out of it i think we might have made a, a small profit on it and then we kind of got out and the story just went uh, left and right and they were changing and you know 
the stuff they had said in the IPO just wasn't happening. Um, and, you know, it drifted and drifted. And then about three years later, anyway, they got a, a kind of a recapitalization from a shareholder um, to kind of get them back going. And I went, I, I just went to the briefing because it was one of the kind of first uh, stocks that Jeff gave me to look at. And he said, oh, dude, go and see what the, what the story is now. But it was the same CEO and they kind of like pivoted away um, but he asked the he asked the audience, um, you know, how many people are aware of X Y Z company? And there was me and probably two other people put their hand up in the in the room. Other eight or nine people. This was their first exposure to the company, so they hadn't got any of the like back history. You know, the CEO hadn't you know not understanding how he hadn't delivered on like ipo promises or whatever but yet you know here he was kind of jumping on the merry-go-round again and i mean i'm sure a few of your listeners who've been around for a while and they see companies raising money and you think like you know who would give them money like how how could they raise like a million dollars or two million dollars but the fact of the matter is there's new people coming into the market all the time and they don't have that kind of base knowledge, base history or base experience of, you know, various directors, CEOs, boards, and it is a bit of a merry-go-round, but that, that is something, uh, I guess you learn with time that, you know, there, you can definitely fool the market about once every five years because a whole new load of investors um, pitch up um, every single day the, the exchange opens. Just on that, let's just say you are a listener for the first time, you're new to the market, where are you going to information to look for opportunities is it looking at asx daily announcements is there any other tools yeah i mean i look at the asx announcements like every day um it's you know it's where you're going to find uh something interesting and it's not per se you know just the results announcements you know i look at you know um who's become a substantial shareholder in the company for uh the first time are increasing their stake in it or directors who are leaving and directors who are joining um, so it's any of those kind of uh, announcements that you think oh that 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 could have an impact uh, here or it could have an impact there in time so that's one thing I think talking to other investors is like uh, a huge um, way to ramp up your kind of market knowledge um, I'm on a Slack group with about 20 other um, private investors and, you know, being able to tap into their uh, collective wisdom on a, on a daily basis is like invaluable. You know, they have their own um, views on announcements. They also have maybe information that you don't have, you know, for, for example, one of the guys is um, very involved in, solar energy renewable energy so you know any of the kind of companies playing in that space that are listed in the asx you know he's got industry insights that you will never read in an asx announcement um you know whose products are they using you know uh, is is x's technology better than y's technology um and then some of them are you know i would say more technical traders you know doing a lot of technical analysis and charts and stuff like that so they're also you know very handy when you're looking for so i'm more of a fundamental guy coming from from wilson's and um, it you know that can be interesting in its own right when 
you know, you, you're looking at something and they think, oh, it's, you know, wouldn't be a good entry point here based on technical analysis that they've done. So I think talking to other investors, um, you know, so stuff like, you know, Strawman, I think is a great resource that's, that, that's come on board in the last uh, few years with them. Um, Andrew Page has done there. You know, Twitter, I think as well is, I, I'm on Twitter all the time. Um, you know, would I trade off of anything I, I see on Twitter? Definitely not. But, you know, it's it's good for getting views. Um, you got to appreciate that you got to take them with a pinch of salt and, and people probably have an agenda behind what they're saying. But um, it's another place to, I guess, find information on, on a stock and the lens through which other people are looking at things. So they'd probably be my big three, I'd say. The ASX announcements, first and foremost. I would say um, talking to other investors in the space that you're looking at, whether that's microcaps, whether that's predominantly you know, junior resource, maybe it's a subset of that, even just like you're just totally focused on gold stocks um, or technology stocks. Um, and then, yeah, those online resources such as you know, Strawman, Twitter, Hot Copper, maybe. Um, I don't think I've been on there in about five years, um, but sometimes it's fun to read some of the stuff, on some, of the, some of the stocks that you hold just for a laugh. That's cool. And maybe if we can dig into a bit more specifics, I suppose, are you able to talk us through what your sort of your personal current approach is and the, the steps that you might do now as like as a private investor or just investing your own money before you take a position in a small cap stock? Yeah, I mean, I like to kind of keep it kind of, well diversified, especially in especially in the micro cap space. You know, I don't want uh, the liquidity is um, always a concern, um, even even under even under the retail side. But so I like to keep it well diversified. So that's one, and that's like across sectors. That's across. Um, Market caps within micro caps. If I can just define my micro cap, it's anything from 300 million down. So that's great because, yeah, sometimes obviously people have different interpretations and definitions of that. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just stick with the, I just stick with the, the US. So, the US, um, they've got a very hard and fast rule. It's anything under $300 million. So, I just apply that then to the Aussie market. I say 300 million. So, I'll spread it out across market caps, you know, so I'll have slightly bigger ones up around 200. 250 i'll have smaller ones you know around 10 mil and kind of everything in between and sectors in between i don't really look at uh, junior resource names or biotech names or anything that's kind of pre-revenue and the reason i don't look at junior resources names i think it's quite a specialized field um and you know i've never really put the time into learn about who completely wasn't something we focused at, uh, at Wilson's. Um, and I think the difference between the junior resources and the larger guys, the larger guys is, you know, it's, you're taking more of a view on price and effects because they're digging out of the ground at X, selling at Y, and then you, you just got to take a view on what the Aussie dollar versus the US dollar is doing and what you think the spot price is going to do. The junior resources guys, you know, they're not in production. So you're like, you're taking, you got to have a view on the geophysics and the like mineralogy and, you know, history of the tenements, all of that where, you know, that's very specialist, I guess, geology knowledge, um, which I don't have. 
Uh, and I think you kind of need to do a lot of work to get up to speed there. Similar on the biotechnology one, you know, you can compare to, let's say, you know, CSL, for example, you know, they sell a product at X a custom Y, and uh, you just got to admit, think about, you know, what's, what's going to be their uh, revenue growth. The guys in drug development or medical device development, uh, again, you know, I think you need like a medical background, uh, ideally, to understand, you know, what what is the medical um, advantages of their treatment technology device versus what's on the market versus what um, maybe some of the bigger guys are currently working on in terms of projects in the same field. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say those two sectors don't come into my portfolio at all. And the, I, I just comb through ASX announcements. It really, it really is that. That's like my, my starting point. Uh, and then from that, it's working up then, okay, I'll you know, start going back through ASX announcements over time. I'll start chatting to, chatting to other, people, uh, other people about it. Um, and then that all forms into, uh, all forms into, you know, my, my, End view on uh, on what I what I what I think the what I think what I think of the stock, and I'm also probably a growth at a reasonable price investor. So I'm generally looking for if it has a PE, um, sometimes it doesn't. Um, looking for something that's trading like one and a half to two times its PE. So let's say it's you know growing at twenty percent, it's on a PE of ten. But similarly, what I'm not looking for on that metric is, you know, something that's growing at 60, 70% and is trading on a P of 35. Going back to growth at a reasonable price, what's a reasonable price in your opinion? Generally, I tend to look for something that's under whatever the market PE is. Um, so, you know, the Australian market, I think over time is average to PE of around 14. So, you know, I'm looking for stuff like under that, um, ideally. So does that mean, Mark, that you're avoiding some of the higher price PEs in this momentum trade in this sort of macro era where money is a lot more readily available? I mean, it's it's certainly how the market's a lot different to maybe you know, it was four years ago, right? No, I, exactly. Um, and, you know, the whole market PE has lifted um, because of that. Um, you know, it, it, it's trading up probably around 16, 17 times, I think, um, overall now where it was, you know, I mean, the GFC, I think it was below 10. Um, so, I mean, it, it does wax and wane, but I mean, the long-term average is 14. So, like, you know, I tend to tend to look at that and say, well, you know, somewhere below that is, um, I would say, cheap, but then has a, is it cheap for a reason? Um, and what's the growth outlook on, on top of that? Um, the reason I don't like um, high PE stocks is because you get a double whammy um, when things go wrong. So, for example, they report a set of results. Maybe it's actually below what they guided, or it's well below what people were expecting if they if they gave no guidance. So, you know, people thought it was supposed to grow at sixty percent, and only ended up growing at thirty percent. So now you've got a thirty percent drop in earnings, let's say, and the P will let's say it was on thirty thirty five. You know, that's also going to ratchet down now because people are not willing to pay that higher price um, because, the, because the growth isn't there. So you get a double whammy. You, the business left profitable, 
and the P is also coming down uh, on top of that. Now you flip that around to uh, the stuff that I look at, okay, it's like on a P of 12, let's say it's growing at 20%, okay. It delivers 15, 16%, okay. Now as profit is one, maybe the P drops to 11. You know, you don't get the same impact um, by having that kind of, that value tilt. Um, but the other thing I've learned in, in in the markets and you know chatting to uh, chatting to other investors through the years who've got you know wildly different um, uh, philosophies and strategies to me, especially the guys I chat to um, who are very technically focused and you know just working everything off the of charts. There's more than one way to skin a cat in the stock market, and there's more than definitely one more more than one way to make money. Um, but it, but the only way you're going to make money consistently is, as I said before, you got to have some kind of repeatable system and framework that you're operating in that dictates your buying, selling, whole decisions on on a on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. Oh, fantastic, Mark. Would you be able to talk us through some of the other non-financial metrics and things you look out for when you're considering a small cap stock, or what you make sure you know must-haves before you add it to your portfolio? Yeah, so I mean, if they're if they're starting out and they're let's say not yet profitable, um, and there's no PE ratio to speak of, so things I look at there is I I'd say to myself, well, what 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 is it kind of currently growing at? What do I think it's going to grow at? And you know, put that forward three years, and then see well, will it be profitable in three years? And then what would that profit in three years equate to in terms of a PE on the current share price. I think that's a good way to like work out, you know, how much you're paying now for that potential forward growth is to just like quickly model out um, what you think it's going to be earning in, in three years time on, you know, if it's growing at 20% or 25%, uh, 25% a year. Um, things I look for in the industrial space is, you know, how big is their um, addressable market is one. Um, and then what is the, the current market structure? So have they got big incumbents with big budgets that they're trying to um, dislodge from, from, a, from a certain portion of the market? So, I mean, you'll see lots of presentations from microcaps saying that, you know, the total addressable market is like, 10 billion worldwide or whatever i mean i don't put any uh credence in in those uh numbers at all i just say to myself it's quite a large market and they're um gaining market share in it um how big it can be it doesn't really matter you know once you get over a billion or 10 billion of a of revenue for an entire market i mean if you're if you're 10 percent of that market you know you'll have a you'll have a decent sized business and then it's what are the 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 market structure in terms of the incumbents you know what could their possible reaction be to these new kids on the block are they savvy enough to be able to tackle the competition head on and kind of i guess keep them in their place or are they lazy and um, I guess dismissive of these new new competitors because they've been around for so long 
um, and they actually don't do anything. But uh, you know, in time, they uh, they wise up to the fact that they're actually losing uh, a whole lot of customers to uh, to these new startups. So they're probably the two the two things I look around the industrial side is how big is the market that they're they're getting into, uh, and what's the current structure of it in terms of the the encompass. What about on the growth and expansion side? What are you looking out for in that regard? You know, I've got kind of two rules for like micro caps in terms of the strategy that I, w- I want them to be following. And the first one is like they they got to have a strategy to get bigger. You'll find a lot of micro caps where, you know, it was capped at 10 million five years ago. It's capped at maybe 14 million today or, you know, shot up to 25 and it's back down to 10. But um, the profitability, underlying profitability is much the same as it was five years ago, even though it's been on a, have a roller coaster share. They have to have a clear strategy to get bigger. How are they getting bigger? That can be organic growth, can be through acquisitions, can be a combination of the both. But they've got to have a clear strategy of getting bigger so that they start becoming more relevant to the institutional guides, the moving up the indexes. Or they got to have a clear strategy of softly putting together uh, a business here with management knowing that at some point maybe one of the bigger guys is, is, is just going to, um, you know, gobble them up uh, and make them part of um, part of their kind of broader business. You see that quite a lot with, um, I find, with the medical device guys. You know, one of the one of the, the big global guys in medical devices, you know, they wait till something gets FDA approval. They've got it like bit of distribution they know the doctors are using or whatever and they're like okay we'll just go in and buy them and we like slot them into our supply chain like these guys have kind of done all of the all of the legwork for us and and you know reduce our risk and they're happy to come in um and that's one of the things i kind of look for as well in the microcaps you know are they setting themselves up to be a very attractive acquisition target or have they got a clear strategy to grow because there's far too many microcaps who been around four or five years and even 10 years and the profitability forget about what the share price is on the profitability hasn't really moved on in in, in the same amount of time i think that's one of the things you should ask yourself when you, if you come across a microcap that's been listed for quite a period of time and you've got to say well what's different now compared to five years ago that this is going to mark uh a change in its development and evolution in terms of um, profitability and growth and, you know, moving up the kind of market cap ranks. And there are any sort of specific examples or standout companies that you've observed or held in your portfolio over the years that have really turned into a you know, small or unloved micro cap into something much more substantial? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, corporate travel management to definitely, definitely be one. And yeah, I remember the first time we met um, Jamie Ferris, the CEO and founder, as part of the the IPO roadshow. And corporate travel management—that's ticket code CTD, I think, isn't it? Yeah, you know, we used to do near on a, a, a thousand meetings a year at, at Wilson Asset Management um, with like various various companies. I mean, our day we might have five or six company meetings um, every single day. Uh, and you know you you see a lot of CEOs, a lot of companies, um, but you know the 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 kind of good stories are good CEOs. You know, there's they nearly like smack you in the face. And I remember the first time we met Jamie, and you know he was just so passionate. 
and kind of so knowledgeable and you know had such a um clear vision of like where he was going what he wanted to do every you know it's like when you meet somebody with like a, extreme commitment and passion in kind of any walk of life you just like like there is no way that guy's not going to be successful there's no way it's not going to like work he's just like too passionate about it um and committed and he's like you know willing to um uh do whatever it takes to like get it there and you know it's been a you know it's been a a, a great a great success story uh, you mentioned very much about the ability to go back and rebuy a stock that you followed. Um, just some general comments, I guess, uh, for listeners in investing in small and unresearched stocks. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the longer you're uh, in the game and you, you, you kind of know these companies, well, it's, again, it's all back to context, is, um, you know, it's like the wrong... P- point in the cycle to be buying them but when the when the cycle turns um you know now is now i can get back into it uh, i can't remember the the guy's name i once read a, a story about a guy who'd you know been a small investment manager in the states and um they he'd done an analysis of all his kind of trade history portfolio history over um the kind of 24 or five years his fund was running and he found that the majority of the profits that he made or the returns that he generated came from stocks that he owned multiple times so he would you know buy it it maybe got too expensive or um you know the cycle started going against him in terms of uh, macro trends and he you know sold out but you know when the cycle turned again or um you know a new ceo came in or whatever, you know, he, he'd buy back into the stock because he'd be like, okay, it's a good business, but it's been poorly managed for the last two or three years under the kind of previous CEO for whatever reason. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, something for retail investors to bear in mind. You've done a lot of groundwork, understanding the business and following it for a while. Just because it exits your portfolio doesn't mean um, you're never going to buy it again. Um, I always keep an eye on, uh, on stuff that um, you know, I've done a lot of work with in the past, um, just to see, you know, actually, is the story the same, or you know, have things moved on, or is a is there kind of a fundamental change happening there? That's interesting, Mark. That it's really interesting because we've listened to other guests and they've said that, you know, often the hardest thing to do is after you've booked a big gain on a position is is to put it on another watch list and stop watching it because your emotions start to take over. So uh, it's really kind of fascinating, um, you know, if you've done all that groundwork, how you sort of juxtapose that with putting it to one side, I guess, or going back and rebuying it. Look, it's, it's obviously fascinating and how you really get those oversized returns. Yeah, because, I mean... You you want to you want to leverage the knowledge that you already have. So if you if if you if you've spent a long time with it, um, you know, and you've made money out of it, um, you know, chances are you probably make money out of out of it again because you know, okay, at this point in the cycle, you know, these guys uh, tend to kind of print money, um, or you know, this CEO you know has very badly managed this business, but when I owned it under the previous CEO. You know, it was actually a very good business. Now they've got somebody else in, you know, this is like a key change. There's actually a good business behind here. It's just been uh, poorly managed for 
uh, a period of time. Um, so it, it's good to keep an eye, and you know, a lot of the times you'll you know quickly glance down the 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 annual report or the director's report, and they'll go on about how tough it is and industry hasn't changed or they're facing some kind of internal headwinds that aren't really going you know maybe they like overpaid for an asset and they're trying to work that through in terms of right sizing it you know maybe they're taking right down instead of but you know you can say okay they've made a mistake there but once they clean up this mistake you know then people are going to get excited about it again and it's keeping track of those like little search i mean <laughs> My watch has got about 250 names on it. Um, so, you know, it, uh, and, um, you know, I get a, a, I, I go through every single one of those results now in like February and August. Um, and, you know, that filters down then into a subset that eventually becomes, um, becomes a, a portfolio. But like some of those, some of those I can look at for like one, one minute and I'd be like, no, Nothing has changed. Okay, I'll, I'll look at it again in six months. Um, I don't do a deep dive in all 254 of them every every six months, but um, definitely I, I I put down a list out to the side of okay, once uh, all these results have you know stop coming through like um, like cannon fodder, you know, especially in that last week in in the microcap space, you know, you can have five or six companies that you're interested in all reporting in the space of two hours. Um, that kind of first second week of March, I'll have a list of okay, that looked very interesting. Um, I need to go back and look at that and do more work on uh, on that one. So on that, Mark, are you documenting high level points quickly, revenue numbers, profitability, cash flow, or are you parking some of these in frantic times so that you can come back? I guess I'm just trying to draw out your strategy, what's working for you, what you like to have. Have a go at. Yeah, I mean, before uh, before the announcements come out on kind of the, the the ones I'm more focused on, I'll have like a little cheat sheet in 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 front of me, and I'll be like, okay, did they hit what I thought they were going to do in revenue? Did they hit what I thought they were going to do um, on EBITDA, or NPAT, or you know, sales growth, or whatever it is? And I have like probably seven or eight bullet points, and it's all like you know, print it out for each individual stock and I'll just like tick X, tick X, tick X, uh, whatever it might be all the way down. And then for the other ones, um, which are like on the watch list, but maybe not have a, a current focus in mind, um, I'll be like, I'll have a sheet that I just keep permanently beside my desk and I'll, I'll, um, I'll just quickly look at their result and I'll say, okay, put down on the follow-up sheet and I'll write maybe two or three notes just beside it to say, why I thought it was interesting at the time I looked at it because you know two three weeks later you can kind of forget like what was your what was your what was your top process so I'll put down maybe two or three bullet points of why I need to follow up on that in two or three weeks and this is what I was thinking when I guess the result first hit the wires and came out on the on the ASX platform okay brilliant so if you had those checklists for those eight points and they ticked it off would you be automatically actioning a buy because as you can appreciate with some of these small caps, you know, the next day the funds will start to look at it. If it starts to creep above that 300 mil, are you actioning? Are you buying? Are you yeah, adding to positions? Yeah, exactly. It I mean, it, it, then it's a case of, okay, what, what do I, what do I do now? Is it, um, am I going to take 
more of a position? Uh, am I happy to hold what I have now? Um, you know, maybe I'm starting to think it's expensive. You know, everyone's excited about. I think it's you know um, maybe a tad expensive. You know, do I want to let some go here? And you know, I'll take a smaller position if it comes back to me after the um, what shall I say? The excitement around reporting season dies down a bit because I often find a lot of these microcaps they can pop hard, you know, for the first day or two after results, and then they like kind of trickle down. So sometimes it's not a bad idea to um, trade around your position. Um, you know, let it go. You know, let some go if you've got like you know a three percent weight in your portfolio. Let a percent go, and if it tr- trickles back down to you, then you can you know get back in there and pull it back up to up to three percent. So now, definitely, if it's hitting all of the, all of the, all of the, all of the points, then I'm definitely trying to decide. Okay, what what am I doing? Am I adding, holding, or if it's getting like really toppy, really excitable? Okay, do I want to, I want to let some go into into this a liquidity and b maybe what I think is like kind of expensive pricing for where the company is at right now. And Mark, you mentioned your sweet spot is very much around profitability or entering a cash flow positive stage. Have there been any investments uh, that you've invested in that are pre-revenue uh, or uh, maybe a bit further away in the cycle? No, I don't look at stuff that's pre-revenue. I mean, my thoughts on that are, I mean, it's already hard enough to model revenue and profitability, trying to work out the value of something when you don't even have the first number in the P&L, uh, to me, is just too hard. Um, so I, I never I never look at anything that's like, uh, I might look at it, um, it might end up on a watch list, but it, it, it wouldn't go much further than that in the, in the pre-revenue things. In terms of approaching profitability, what I look at there is I want to be looking at things that I think are going to turn cash flow positive, EBITDA, um, positive in the next say like 12 to 18 months I don't want to be looking at something that's you know it's doing 400,000 revenue a year okay it might be growing at like 50% or 60% but it's cost base is 5 or 6 million a year you know even even at those growth numbers it, it, it's years away from, from breaking even and the reason I like to look at that street spot is a lot of the fund managers in their like investment rules and processes and I mean, it's a bit of a, I guess, an insight from having worked at Wilson's. They'll actually, through compliance reasons, not be able to invest in a stock if it's not profitable. You know, so that'll, that's that's also kind of a filter for them. Okay, if it's not profitable at, and, you know, the level might depend on the fund manager. You know, some say it has to be, you know, profitable at the, at the NPAT level. Others will be happy if it's profitable at the, EBITDA level or the EBIT level, whatever it might be. So I know from, I guess, having having worked on the other side or the inside for a while, that a lot of small cap managers and micro cap managers in the institutional space won't even look at a stock if it's not profitable. So if, you, if you're looking at stuff that's trending that way, I can say to myself, well, in 12 months time, there's a whole suite of institutional investors that this stock will now be on their radar. Not saying they're going to jump in and buy it, but it, at least it's going to come on their, on their radar in terms of um, research, due diligence, and um, 
potential for inclusion because now it actually from a compliance standpoint and their investment rules and process standpoint it's actually able to go into the portfolio now um, so that, that that's what that that's where i'm kind of coming from there is that you know that 12 months ahead of time you know it's one little advantage that um the retail investor has over maybe some of the institutional guys yeah, that's terrific. And I think you've underscored the point, whether it be a fund manager or it be a retail mum or dad, is find your strategy, find what works for you and, and stick to it and try and repeat it. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, 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 the, it's the biggest, to me, it's the biggest differentiator between what the fund managers do um, and not even fund managers, what successful investors do versus, I think, unsuccessful investors. Successful investors have a clear process they know what's in their wheelhouse and they generally stick to it um you know pretty rigidly and and just try and tweak and improve it over time whereas a lot of you know retail investors mums and dads maybe they're working off of tips they get from like other people or you know ad hoc research that they're doing here and there and and they end up with this very um idiosyncratic uh, portfolio of stocks that's a mishmash of everything um, but that wasn't even what they designed or set out to to create you know it's fine having a, a highly idiosyncratic uh, portfolio if you're setting out to do that um, you know you want something that's completely away from the benchmark that's you know not really um, following kind of any kind of market trends here or there it's like 15 stocks that you think are going to go up for various different reasons and you're putting a portfolio together like that whereas i think a lot of maybe retail investors mums and dads end up with that portfolio but not true not through any design just it's what they've uh, managed to buy over time based on various different uh, factors and influences mark this is really fascinating because I guess I'm really interested to see uh, what your thoughts are because you referenced a conversation with Dominic Stevens and the ASX about four years ago about um, him attracting overseas technology business, I guess, to diversify away from this, the traditional Australian mining and banks. Do you find that that's, do you think that's been a better thing over time and, and how has that changed your approach when, when getting in touch with management, obviously in different countries? Yeah. I mean, I think what Dominic has has done has been i would say a muted success if i can say that um i mean we've seen a raft of israeli businesses come on come on board um some for better or worse um and a few you know a few more american names and then a few other random ones um so i think uh, he's had some success I, he probably hasn't had the success i think he maybe like wanted the my worry is with these international guys is how do they service the market when they're not on the ground here? Um, because I don't, I, I don't think you can do it effectively if you know you're flying in for the AGM once a year, um, or maybe when the full year result comes out and you come back for the AGM. You know, I think if the if these international companies are going to come, they got to have a clear strategy of, of um, being relevant to the market. You see so many companies saying. You know, our our stock is undervalued um, compared to competitors or, you know, what, what management thinks. And 
you know, but, but what are you doing to address that? You know, if you're running a business out of Chicago and you're coming into Australia for the AGM and maybe a bit of a roadshow once a year, I mean, people, unfortunately, people will just forget about you. It's just, it's just as simple as that. Okay, I just make one point on the, if there's any companies listening out there, putting those, uh, it's really a bugbear of mine, putting those, uh, valuation comparisons into ASX presentations. You know, they'll say our revenue is this and our market cap is this compared to these guys. They've got half the revenue, double the market cap, yada, 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 yada. Okay. If you think your stock is cheap, then by all means put that uh, uh, slide into your presentation deck. But I equally, I want to have seen uh, large buying by insiders in the run-up to the release of that, that, that presentation because too many times you see um, presentations where they go on about like what value their stock is which uh, we haven't seen any change in directors interest notes with directors buying um, stock on market CEOs CFOs uh, buying stock on market but yet they'll moan about um, you know how cheap their stock is compared to competitors but yet they don't seem to be buying it so yeah, it's one of my bugbears. I've said it to a few CEOs. Don't put that slide in unless you're like backing it up with action in the market. And that's fairly consistent, Mark, with what our guests have been saying. Is particularly in small caps. Is is we want to see directors or management uh, as founders or with skin in the game that are buying if if they can, and there's a window to do so. So I think that's very good. Yeah, I I think skin in the game. I yeah, sorry, just so when you mentioned skin in the game. It's a double-edged sword. Um, you've got to be very careful with it. Um, yes, it's good to have it, I think, up to a point. Um, but if you get it to a point where it's uh, the founder has too much control or owns too much of the stock, then you can get into a situation where it's being, you know, a, a private company to, that just happens to be listed, as the, as the old saying goes. Um, or they're doing stuff, you know, that's in the best interests of the major shareholder, but it might be the best interests of the company and minority shareholders. So there's a lot of talk. I find there's a lot of talk about, especially among fund managers, you know, when they're sketching out their process and, you know, they say they want founders and they want skin in the game. I think it's good to have it, better to have it than not. But I think you also got to be very careful about, um, reaching that tipping point where the major shareholders will just like run the business the way they see fit and they don't, uh, they don't really care what kind of anybody else um, says, thinks, uh, thinks about it. Um, And just to give you kind of maybe two examples of that. um, One would be, I remember working at Wilson's one time and I called up this company. um, Hadn't come across it before looked like it was cheap, looked like kind of interesting. I said, okay, well, said it to, to Chris. He said he agreed. Let's try and get him in for a meeting. I said, okay, fine. I'll try and arrange it. Anyway, I called the, the CFO. Um, he was uh, less than happy to even take my call after I eventually got through to him. Uh, let's say that. Uh, he was a bit turbulent on the phone. And he basically said to me, look, the top three shareholders own 83% of the stock. So, I don't see any point in like having a meeting. There's the, 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 there's nothing you're going to be able to do, and I was like, "But why are you why are you listed then? If you don't like if you don't want like new shareholders or you don't want people to, you know, 
jump on the bid and maybe push up the price of your shareholding, you know, what's the <laughs> what's the point of being listed? Um, so it. So, and then the other the other situation that you did that's problematic with skin in the game I often find is you'll have a major shareholder who owns I don't know let's say 50% of the 50% of the business and they don't want to be diluted so then it it restricts liquidity in the stock and then it doesn't it doesn't go anywhere it just kind of just kind of sits there and um, you need to as I say to some of the stockbrokers you need to kind of sell them the story of you know do you want to be 50% shareholder of a 20 million rand business or would you or 20 million dollar business or would you prefer to be a, you know a 30% shareholder of 150 million dollar business you know but you know people th- th- that liquidity is like needed by the institutional guys um, and to aid price discovery um, so you know that's th- those large shareholding bases and skin in the game, um, I, I kind of take a different view, I think, to a lot of people in that it's it's better to have it than not. But you also got to treat it with a with, with a level of caution when it when it starts. Um, I think when it when you when you start getting over the twenty percent level. Yeah, look, I think it's really important, Mark, because it's about balance. You, you want a founder that that has skin, but is motivated and allows other buyers to come. Um, we're kind of keen just to um, find out what your process is a little bit and maybe applying that to what your what your 10-bagger is. Um, that's where we put every guest under the microscope uh, and sort of think, well, what do I think is going to do really well? What's a big business? What's your 10-bagger, Mark? Uh, my 10-bagger? Um, probably a story I've been following for... I, I wrote it up on Livewire... God, it must be two years ago now, maybe three years ago. Um, company based down in Melbourne called MedAdvisor, um, run by a, a guy called Robert Reed. Um, so essentially what MedAdvisor do is they're um, working with pharmacies, doctors, and the drug manufacturers, I guess, to improve um, adherence to patients taking their medication. Uh, and and managing managing that whole you know repeat script uh, issue for people who are on chronic uh, medication. So they've developed a kind of suite of technology where you know your doctor you can do repeat meds that goes straight to um, the pharmacy. The pharmacy can then um, get that together ahead of time, and then you just you can just like walk in and collect it. So it's improving efficiency for the doctor it's improving efficiency for the pharmacy because you know suddenly you just walk in and say oh here's my script can you like fill it now you know they can do a whole bulk of them like ahead of time or have one person to it similarly for the patients you know they can then just come in collect and go um and also for the doctors one of the things that they like about it improves like patient adherence because you can set up notifications to say okay have I taken my drugs today? Yes, no, reminders, the times you need to take it. Um, so they're Australian business uh, currently. They've got about 60% of the pharmacies um, signed up. They've raised money consistently at premiums to their share prices. So, you know, in, in microcap land, you, you don't find many companies raising at premiums to, to current share prices. They're making a big push into the US, which I think is going to be the make or break for the story. Um, they're investing a lot of capital to... 
get um, their system compatible with uh, a lot of the software that's used by U.S. pharmacies. So it's you know it's a global uh, plane in the like health technology, health analytics uh, space. Um, and it's you know if I was to say uh, ten bagger, you you don't say what the time frame is on it, but. Um, you know, if we're talking one month, I wouldn't say so. If we're talking, if we're talking, uh, I, I tend to operate on a three to five year time frame for most of my stuff. But I think, you know, on a three to five year time frame, if if the the biggest key component is going to be this US thing, they'll either blow up a whole lot of capital or, you know, this, it's going to be a very, very big success story. Um, but if I had to choose one, like right this minute, um, and one that I followed for a while that, so yeah, MedAdvisor, MDR is the code. Fantastic. It's a good summary for people to go and have a look at. It. And like I say, with a longer time frame, everyone's strategies are different. So you can see how it plays out. One thing we haven't covered off yet, Mark, is your current role and work with Coffee Microcaps. Did you want to give us a rundown, a bit of an overview of what that entails? Yeah. So I started Coffee Microcaps uh, last year. Um, so basically right now I'm just uh, running um, conferences. and. <laughs> I basically started the first conference because I was getting so frustrated that there was no outlet for microcap companies to kind of get their story out there. As I said, media coverage is non-existent. Um, and if you're not a junior resource company or in the biotech space, um, a catch-all term, as I say, industrial microcaps, there's not really anything there for you. Um, there's the annual microcap uh, conference um, that Dean H. Flinders run down in Melbourne that's been running for during their 12th year, maybe their 13th year this year. Um, but outside of that, other than broker events, you know, there's not there's not really anywhere for these microcaps to, I felt anyway, to engage uh, a retail, the retail audience, the retail investor, and for the retail investor to provide them with an opportunity to actually see these companies in person other than seeing them at the AGM once a year. So, you know, that's why, that's why I started. So, okay, I'm going to start a conference. It's just going to be industrial uh, microcaps. You know, I tried to get in any of the, any of the ones that, uh, you know, I liked and I thought were like kind of flying under the radar. Um, and the first one was I incredible feedback from the first one. So uh, we did the second one, the second one. Um, so these were last year, were they, sorry, Mark, that you started 2019? Yeah. yeah, the last one in October. The companies responded really well after I kind of got one under my belt. Um, but yeah, the second one, you know, we were sold out in terms of tickets for the second one. We sold twice as many tickets as uh, from the first one to the second one. And the next one is happening in Sydney on the 26th of March. Uh, I'm just putting together the agenda for it now. I've got kind of got 10 of the 12 companies um, lined up. I'm just trying to fill these last uh, two spots now. I've got a couple of maybes. And I think, yeah, it's going to be another another exciting uh, event with kind of 12 companies that I think, you know, are different stages of the revolution, some profitable, some getting there, different sectors, different market caps. Um some, you know, kind of in that turnaround phase, some in that, you know, who've kind of maybe lost their way a bit, a few fallen angels, uh, a few like, you know, real kind of startup uh, companies that, you know, come to the ASX more recently. Um, so, I think, you know, I try, my, my goal is from the Coffee Microcaps conferences for the people who attend is, 
if you can come away from the day with two companies that you think, you know, when I get back to my desk, I'm going to do more work on these two. To me, that's a success for me. I think that's a, a reasonable return on, of investment in terms of your time of being there for, for, for the whole day, if you come for the whole day. Um, my, my goal for the companies is to, you know, just to drive a bit more awareness first and foremost, and then hopefully inbound inquiry then after the conference, people say, oh no, I saw you at Coffee Microcaps, you know, here's, I've done some more work, here's more questions, or, you know, the next set of results come out and say, look, I'm a shareholder now, I saw you at Coffee Microcaps, here's questions I had. And I also wanted it for the people attending, as a for for somebody who's on Twitter a lot, as a forum to actually uh, and strawman to me up in person because there's a lot of smart people I guess in and around this space and you, you kind of just interact with them on Twitter which it's not the same as having that like in person experience and you can talk to somebody at length and not in uh, 140 characters. So I did, we hosted networking drinks after the event um, the last time. And, you know, a lot of people who had been over and back on Twitter or email for years actually, you know, met up in person for the like very first time. And I know some of them caught up and went for dinner the night before the conference. Um, uh, I, I want to build hopefully a community that, you know, people can then leverage in their own portfolios just going back to what you were saying there, the, the work you've done has been absolutely terrific. I guess hopefully listeners are going to say, well, hopefully you're coming to other states. And if not, where can they possibly reach? Yeah, you? other states is definitely on the cards. Unfortunately, I actually wanted to do one in March in Melbourne. But just with the way the school holidays was lining up between um, New South Wales school holidays and Victoria school holidays, it, it, I just couldn't get it to, to line up perfectly in terms of dates and securing the venues that I wanted. Um, but it's definitely coming to other states. I would say Melbourne is uh, on the cards um, maybe in May, actually. Uh, if not, definitely um, September, October. Uh, Brisbane is also in the mix there as well. Um, Outside of that, probably the best place to find me is on Twitter uh, at uh, cmicrocaps is my Twitter handle. So if you uh, follow me on on there, you'll you'll be up to date with everything I'm doing. Or if anybody wants to email me, they can just email me at uh, mark at coffeemicrocaps.com. Brilliant, Mark. We could go on, but I know uh, with a view of time, we um, better let you um, get back to it. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much again for your time and sharing your thoughts, Mark. Much appreciated. Okay, thanks. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.